clear expectations are really important in relationships, aren't they? Uh, whether it's a business relationship or a personal one, and problems occur when we don't know what to expect. So what does God expect from us? Now, I know the atheist thinks this is a crazy question. There, there's, there's no meaning, there's no significance in the universe. We're just here by accident and, um, you know, that's it. But actually, what if this beautiful ordered world is has been created. How can we know this God and how can we know what he expects of us? Well, I think a critical way of addressing that fundamental question has to involve looking at the person of Jesus Christ because of the incredible claims that he makes. Now, if, if we reject those claims, then then you know we will have to look somewhere else. But if what Jesus says is correct and true, then this answers all the fundamental questions that we might have about life. Uh, we have got to uh, this section in Mark chapter um, 11 to 13, and we see that um, this is the key issue as Jesus is confronted by the leaders of Israel. Who is he? What's the identity of Jesus? Uh, is he central? Uh, in God's purposes for them as a nation? Is he central in God's purposes for the world or not? It starts with Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, and we've seen how that was an actually a very public claim that he was their Messiah. He was the one that God had promised for thousands of years would come and would bring in a glorious new era for Israel, a kingdom that would last forever, a kingdom that would stay, extend throughout the whole world. And we see Jesus going to the very center of Israel, coming to the temple and uh, examining what was there, a bit like he examined a leafy fig tree that he found had no fruit. And we read that uh, he cursed that fig tree. And then we see him going into the back to the temple and clearing it out of all the people who are selling animals, of the money changers who are busy filling up the temple courts with their commerce and business and, and teaching them, you've, you've uh, made this house, which is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, into a den of robbers. And we saw that this got Jesus a lot of attention. Who did Jesus think he was to do such a thing? By what authority are you doing these things, the chief priests asked. Is he the Messiah, the one who has the authority and right as God's king to, to act in this way? Should they recognize him as the unique son of God who was the rightful heir of Israel? Or was he a pretender, someone to be despised and rejected? Now, if he is the Messiah, the Son of God, then that changes everything, doesn't it? So what do you think? How do you view Jesus? The point is, if he did rise from the dead, then his, then his claim extends over our lives as well. And you cannot have a right relationship with God without rightly responding to his Son, if Jesus is who he claims that he is. This is why the conflict that we're reading about in these chapters is not merely historical interest. It impacts us. Peter's eyewitness evidence of uh, what happened to that fig tree that it got shriveled up from the roots uh, points out not, not only is the temple doomed, as we're going to see in chapter 13, as Jesus says, it will be totally destroyed. 
So it's the end of Judaism that rejects the Messiah, but also our lives are doomed if we are rejecting the very king that God has sent to be our savior. Uh, These chapters show the interaction of the leaders and their conflict with Jesus. We saw in 11 chapter uh, verse 27, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders coming to Jesus, asking him about, you know, by whose authority are you doing this? And then in chapter 12, verse 13, we saw about the Pharisees and the Herodians coming to try and trap Jesus, uh, the question about paying taxes. And then we get to 12, verse 18, and the Sadducees. Uh, These were the kind of religious aristocrats, uh, the ones who were in charge of the the business of the temple. Uh, They were proud of their tradition and their place and their understanding. And Mark, as usual, tells the readers the key facts about them. In verse 18, And the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him with a question. Um, They didn't believe in the resurrection. I suppose, like some modern people today, you know, they think death, after death, nothing. Uh, this life is all that there is. Um, and so uh, no, no resurrection means there's no judgment day beyond death. There's no future reward. And actually, it means that there's no future justice. But the Sadducees uh, came to Jesus with this unlikely scenario, probably made up uh, to try and make Jesus look silly and laughable before the people. The story of this poor woman uh, who uh, is widowed seven times over, marrying the brothers, and then she finally dies. And they say, look, at the resurrection, when people rise from the dead, whose wife will she be, Jesus? And no doubt they sat back and waited to uh, see Jesus squirm uh, as he answered the question. Well, Jesus doesn't squirm. He comes straight right back at them. They are seriously wrong Sadducees. <laughs> Verse 24. Are you not in error? And verse 27, you are badly mistaken. So why are they so wrong in their thinking? Well, there are, there are two reasons given in verse 24. Uh, they do not know the scriptures or the power of God. See, when it comes to knowing God, You'll be ignorant about God. You'll be ignorant about the most important things in life if you do not know these two things. The scriptures, which is why we give so much of our time to studying the Bible and seeing what it has to say. Uh, If you'll know the scriptures, you'll properly know God, Jesus says. And you also need to know that the power of God, the God who has inspired these words, is the God who fulfills his promises, the God who keeps his promises, the God who has the power to do that. So firstly, Jesus deals with their presenting issue of their tragic little tale. And he says, look, in verse 25, when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. The life to come is an eternal life, Jesus says. Our ongoing existence will not require children to outlive us. uh, So there'll be no need for marriage in heaven. In that regard, we'll be similar to the angels. Then Jesus deals with their fundamental error of understanding. They they say there's no resurrection, but if they knew their scriptures and they knew the power of God, they could not hold this view. Verse 26, now about the dead rising. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God 
of the dead, but of the living, you are badly mistaken. Well, the logic is quite clear. When God was speaking to Moses before this bush that appeared to be burning, but wasn't, the bodies of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were long ago dust in the ground. But God speaks as if they still exist. And so it would be ridiculous for God to say that he is the God of men who have no existence. And so when God says he is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, it can only mean that they are in fact living. And so life beyond death is a reality. Now that's got huge implications for us, doesn't it? It's a wonderful comfort for those like Abraham, Isaac and Jacob who've entered into a relationship with God. When this God becomes our God in a personal way, then his power is such that even not even death can separate us from a vital relationship with him. And that's why for the Christian, death is not to be feared. I think we're living with a profound level of fear in society, fear of death through COVID. But the point is, if COVID doesn't get you, something else is going to get you. We're all going to die. But the Christian is not frightened of death when they're in personal relationship with this God. For he can awaken us from death in the same way that we can wake up from sleep every day to enjoy God forever, our friendship with him, and also with those who have gone before us, who are also in personal relationship with God. That there is no marriage in heaven might be bad news, or maybe it's good news, depending on the state of your marriage right now, but all relationships in heaven will be the very best of what we know in loving intimacy and companionship here. So we're not going to miss out by the fact that there's no marriage in heaven. So if you know the God of Abraham as, and the God Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, do not fear. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. But if you do know God in this way, then uh, that's wonderful. But if you don't, then the thought of resurrection should rightly be terrifying. Because this God actually knows me and knows everything about me. And after death, there is the judgment, the Bible says. Our whole lives come under this scrutiny and examination of a holy God who knows everything we've ever said, done and thought. How we live now does matter because of the resurrection. Uh, January the 27th is marked as the day of commemoration of those who are victims of the Holocaust under Nazi Germany. I remember one incident about um, when some SS soldiers came to kill an orphanage of children with disabilities, which the Nazis did. And one of the carers stood in front of the orphanage and begged them not to do this. He was a Christian and all he could simply say to these powerful soldiers was this, to kill these children who were made in the image of God would be an unspeakable evil that would bring the punishment of God against them in the life to come. And they relented from their terrible act. Now put yourself in their mat and shoes. What else could you have said in that situation to dissuade them? How we live now matters to God. The resurrection changes everything about how we live now. A God who will judge the big things and the hidden things in our lives. And so back to that question, what does this God expect from us? Well, the answer comes from what follows. We turn from this seriously wrong Sadducee to this scribe with no strength in verses 28 to 34. 
A scribe would have been kind of an, a, an expert, a scholar of the Hebrew scriptures. And he hears with interest Jesus' conversation with the Sadducees. And he comes with his own question in verse 28 of all the commandments, which is the most important. Well, Jesus gives him two for the price of one. Um, the answer that Jesus gives is, is, is simple but profound. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. The first part of that was well known. It was a quote from the Jewish Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 6, known as the Shema. It was recited every morning and every evening by every pious Jew. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The logic of the verse is powerful. There is only one God who's Lord of everything, so he alone is worthy of our total life obedience. If you live in a world uh, such as the ancient Greco-Roman world where they were considered loads, a pantheon of gods with uh, different jurisdictions, well, then you're, you're struggling uh, to know which one you're supposed to be serving any given time. Your loyalties are divided, but um, God revealed himself quite clearly. There is only one God. And so he alone is worthy of our total love and obedience. Do you notice the repetition of the word all four times? What does God expect from us, his creatures? Well, he deserves and expects nothing less than the whole of our love from the whole of ourselves. And if this was not enough, Jesus adds a second, love your neighbor as yourself. Most healthy, normal people do a reasonable job of taking good care of themselves, uh, making sure that they uh, get food to eat and, and water to drink and rest and brush their teeth, take good care of themselves. Well, Jesus says, love other people with that same commitment that you love yourself. Look at the end of verse 31. There is no other commandment greater than these. The most important commandment of all is a double-pronged one. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. It's no good just simply loving your neighbor if you don't first wholeheartedly love God. And we cannot pretend that we love God if we don't actually love the people around us. As the disciple John puts it in his first letter, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have not seen cannot love God. Who, who, they don't love their brother and sister whom they have seen. They cannot love God whom they have not seen. It was this disconnect that Jesus is warning about later in, uh, in verses 38 to 39. The scribes uh, show actually that they don't love God by the fact that they don't really love their neighbors as themselves. Uh, they're living for the approval of men rather than God. They just love recognition in the marketplace, the best seats, the places of honor. And while they're making uh, showy, lengthy prayers, they're at the same time ripping off widows. Beware of such men. Beware of such religious people who are really on the take for themselves. And sadly, they're still folk like that today who are constantly asking for you to give a seed gift to their ministry while they buy another Learjet to fly around in. 
And in total contrast to the teachers of the law, we see this widow who goes to the temple and puts in two coins. And actually what Jesus sees is that this act of her giving out of her poverty, putting in everything, all that she had to live on, was a profound display of her love for God as she gave in that way. Well, back to the scribe. He's delighted by the answer Jesus gives. He acknowledges, Jesus, you've got it right. Loving God, loving others. Well, that's the essence of true worship. More important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now look at verse 34. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom. Now that is an encouragement, isn't it, for this man? Not far. I wonder, what about you? Where are you in relationship to the kingdom of God? Um, maybe you've been listening in, you've been investigating, you've been increasingly coming to feel that what Jesus is saying is right, you're in agreement with him. The problem for this man is that being not far from the kingdom means that he's still not inside the kingdom. If the problem with the Sadducees was that they don't love God with their minds because they've not really understood what the scriptures had to say, the problem with the scribe is that he, he gets intellectually it right, but he doesn't love God with his heart and his strength. He seems to be stuck at an intellectual level. He, he sees that Jesus has answered wisely. He's got that bit clear in his mind, but he's still not responded to Jesus with his heart and his strength. He's quite delighted with the answer without seeming to realize the implications for his own life. And let's think about them for ourselves now. For if these verses do spell out God's expectations for us as his creatures, who is actually fulfilling them? Do we really love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength? Do we really love our neighbor as ourselves? You know, if these commandments are the expectations of the creator the divine expectations on us how are we measuring up and in truth does any of us come anywhere close to obeying them uh, surely rather than the delight of this scribe perhaps he would have been better responding with despair for falling short of them and surely understanding that there is a resurrection from the dead, which he actually would have accepted, would mean something quite concerning that the judge he would meet on the other side would say he fell well short of what was required. I mean, what should have been the response of the scribe if he'd really understood what Jesus was teaching? Well, we've actually already seen the right response earlier at the end of chapter 10. As Jesus uh, was leaving Jericho, blind Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. After all, Jesus was going to the cross, not for his own sins. He's always loved God, always loved neighbor as himself. He's actually going to show that love by going to be crucified on the cross, paying the price for our disobedience, so that all who call on him can receive mercy and redemption and forgiveness and be made right with God. He's not far from the kingdom, but he's not in the kingdom yet because he's not rightly responded to the king of that kingdom. And the right response is to trust Jesus and submit your life to him. To actually choose to uh, 
receive his pardon and to bow the knee before him as a forgiven person rather than being a rebel who will eventually be put under his feet as an enemy in judgment. And that's what Jesus wants to draw everybody's attention to. Uh, People uh, from that point on, no one dared to ask him any more questions, it says in verse 34. And so Jesus actually points out the right response to him as he asks them a question. Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? Well, Notice, just as an aside, that Jesus understood the the Hebrew Scriptures, what is our Old Testament, to be inspired by God. Um, He says, David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared. But notice what he picks up from Psalm 110. You know, what were they expecting in their Messiah? They're probably expecting just a human descendant of David, but... Jesus is saying, actually, no, something much more profound was coming and promised of the coming Messiah. Um, David uh, says, the Lord, speaking of God, says to my Lord, speaking of his offspring. Now, in Hebrew thought, the son is always lesser in honor than than the father. But David addresses his offspring as his Lord. And what Jesus is trying to draw everyone's attention to is that their conception of what the Messiah would be would be was too small. That, yes, of course, he would be a descendant of David. He would be a son of David. But actually, he will be the son of God. Truly man, but truly God. And what's not fully dawned on this scribe is that to love God with the totality of his life was now to be demonstrated in a very practical way which is to acknowledge Jesus now as the son of David and the son of God. How is it that we can uh, fulfill this command to love God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength? Well actually ultimately it's going to be by bowing our knee to Jesus and receiving him as our saviour and king. After the resurrection of Jesus um, from the dead and his ascension, on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit was poured out, Peter is standing in front of the large crowd in Jerusalem and he uh, is saying to them who once called out, crucify, crucify, he quotes Psalm 110 and then he says this to them, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Messiah. And so the most vital question um, is, how do I respond to Jesus? Have I responded to him as as the Messiah, the Son of God? You see, if you're still rejecting Jesus and the claim of Jesus, then according to Jesus, you're still a rebel living in opposition to God. You're outside his kingdom. And there is a day coming when every opponent will be defeated and put under his feet. And that will include you outside the kingdom. But to those who've received him as saviour and king, well, there is the joy of knowing that um, you're you're forgiven. You're a rebel that's been welcomed. You've been brought into his everlasting kingdom where God 
will forgive you for the ways that you fail to love God and love people and will empower you by his spirit to begin to do that work of loving God and loving people. And you know that his return will be a joyful day of receiving him as king. And if you're not sure which one you're in or how to make that change from being someone who is um, a rebel to forgiven and welcomed, well, please get in touch. We would love to talk to you. You see, if Jesus is who he claims to be here, then it changes everything, doesn't it? It means that we know that there is life beyond death. We know that uh, we don't have to guess about what this life is about, that God has revealed himself in Jesus. And we know that we don't have to fear death. For Jesus has conquered death and Jesus is Lord.